Good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to, great to see you and be with you and to open up this passage. I'm really thankful, especially this week, that we have a system where we're going to have opportunity to talk more about the implications of a passage like this one during the week at our fellowship groups. If you're not part of a fellowship group, please do consider joining one because what I'm going to say from God's word this morning, from Romans chapter 13, is going to raise more questions that I'm going to be able to answer this morning. But please don't forget those questions. Write those questions down. Take them to your fellowship groups or just talk about them after the service by all means. Um, but it is an important subject for us to consider as we continue to think about what it means to live by God's grace and for God's glory. That's really the focus of this whole section of the book of Romans. Paul has spent the first 11 chapters in Romans talking about the grace of God, the mercy of God, what it is, how amazing it is, what has been done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive our sins, to bring us into the family of God and into the kingdom of God, not because of the works we do, but all because of what has been done for us and on our behalf through Jesus Christ. In this section of Romans, Paul's now moving on to consider the question, what does it mean to live in view of that mercy? How can we offer ourselves as living sacrifices in view of God's mercy? And some of the answers to that question, especially this week, are going to be sort of more obvious to us. But some of the answers to those questions are going to be more counterintuitive, less obvious, and sometimes challenging, sometimes unsettling. And I think that we may find that in our passage today. In particular, Paul's covering an aspect of what it means to live by God's grace for his glory in a world that is characterized not only by good, but by evil. Yes, there is good in the world. It's not all bad. We see that the goodness of God's creation in nature. We still see the fingerprint of that in the world, but it is a smudged fingerprint. It's a distorted image, distorted by sin. And so this world is characterized by evil. Every time we look to see good, there is a taint or an overtone of evil. The world isn't as bad as it could be, but everything is touched by it. And so Paul's saying, well, how do we live lives by God's grace for his glory in a world like that? Not just here with each other, that has its own challenges, but what about out there? How do we do that in a world that is tainted by evil? And if you look at just the, the verse before chapter 13, it sort of introduces what he's going to say in chapter 13. How do you live in an evil world? Well, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, don't be overcome by it. Don't, don't succumb to it. Don't give in to it. Don't let it defeat you. But at the same time, don't try and fight fire with fire when it comes to evil. Don't fight evil with evil. 
Don't use the same tactics and, and, and methods that the world will use against you. Don't use that back against the world. Don't fight evil with evil. Vengeance with vengeance. Nastiness with nastiness. Instead, overcome evil with good. And that, I think, is really the, the idea that really unifies everything that Paul's saying um, in chapter 13. What does it mean to overcome evil with good? Here's the first thing, and it is surprising. The first thing that we do to overcome evil with good is to submit. Now, submission is difficult for us for a number of levels, on a number of levels. It's difficult for us because of sin. Because we've seen that authority and the idea of submission has been so abused over the course of human history that it makes us weary of it. The idea of submission is dangerous. We've seen the dangers unfold, and sometimes dangerously close to home. So the sinful abuse of authority has made us weary of authority. But also, if we're honest, a part of the reason why the idea of submission is difficult for us isn't because of the sin out there, but because of the sin in here. The natural instinct to be the gods of our own lives. And I say natural not because it's the way God made us, but because it has become part of our human nature ever since the fall. Ever since the fall of man, our instinct has been to say no to anyone or anything, is even God, who has claimed authority over us, and to say, I will live by the authority of my own life. If you think of what happened, that famous account in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3 of the Garden of Eden, what was it that made Adam and Eve, our first parents, fall to sin? What was, what was the temptation? Well, if you eat this fruit that you were told not to eat, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. The idea of children sound like they're having fun, don't they? If only we were, yeah, thank you, Dave. If only we were having as much fun. Um, the, the idea that we would not be the gods of our own lives, the captain of our own fate, the master of our own soul, but yield that over even to God, is something we find very, very difficult. Because of that thing, that impulse to reject God's authority over us, that's the root of where all sinfulness comes from. But it's also difficult for us because of our culture. In our culture today, perhaps for the same reasons, perhaps for different reasons, <laughs> We're shutting more doors in an effort to conceal them. <laughs> um, uh, it's great to have children in the building. And it's, you know, praise God, they're having a good time. Or not having a good time, I'm not sure. I don't, don't know what the squeals are for. But I think our culture is particularly, the, we live in a culture where the idea of submission of one person to another has become something of a dirty word. It's something of a dirty concept. We don't like it. We don't think it's appropriate or right. But that way of thinking about submission, and submission truly understood, biblically understood, because there are all sorts of caricatures of submission, 
That way of thinking about I'm not going to yield myself over to anybody else is not a Christian way of thinking. That's why we find submission difficult. And here's why submission is so important. If you read through the New Testament, you'll find an enormous bulk of time goes to teaching and explaining and encouraging the idea of submission. You don't only find that the focus of Romans 13 is in, to do with secular government, it's to do with the, the governing authorities over us, but you'll find the idea of submission not only in government, but you will find it in homes. You will find it in employer-employee contracts, slaves and masters. You will find it in wives and husbands. You will find it in churches with members and elders. You will find the idea of submission prevalent throughout the New Testament. It's not a side issue in our godliness. The New Testament devotes a surprising amount of time to, for us to encourage us and to help us to understand why the idea of submission is so central to our holiness in all sorts of walks of life. It's important, and the chief reason, the chief reason, there's so much to say on this, but the chief reason is it's important because it reflects the gospel. That's Paul's heart here. In view of God's mercy, submit yourself to the governing authorities. That's the whole impetus of this whole section. But I just want to take you to a slight cross-reference to show you how explicit this is. If you go to Paul's other writings, you will see the same idea linked back to the gospel. Submit because of the gospel. But I just want to take you to one cross-reference to another New Testament writer, the Apostle Peter, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, because Peter, I think, does a good job of making explicit what is implicit in Paul. And here's what he says. In verse, chapter 2, verse 18, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Now, I know that just by mentioning the word slaves, I'm opening something of a can of worms. And I'm just not going to address it because I don't have time, unless you're happy to stay here until tomorrow afternoon. Um, we, we won't be dealing with the issue. However, please don't jump to conclusions about slaves in the Bible. It's more, far more complicated and nuanced than you think. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Now listen to this. So why submit yourself even if it brings suffering upon you, even when the person you are submitting to is unjust or harsh? Why do it? To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth, and when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. 
Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you look at what the New Testament teaches about submission, it always connects our submission to one another in varying degrees and circumstances to the motivation and the example supplied by the Lord Jesus himself. He submitted himself for us. We submit to each other for him. But that raises the obvious question, well, what is it? What is submission? And sometimes we have different ideas about this. Uh, we, we think that submission is sort of a, a, a sort of bemoaning or, or, or grumpy giving in because we have no other kind of option. But if you have another kind of option, you should take that. But that isn't what submission is. Submission is to acknowledge that every authority... Every single authority placed over you in your life is placed there by God. The biblical view of submission is to acknowledge that every view of authority, every person of authority placed over you, from your family to your place of employment to your church to your government, every person placed over you in authority has been placed there by God. And that by yielding yourself to their authority, you're not submitting to them ultimately, but to God ultimately through them. They are the human agents of God's will. Let me give it to you in the Apostle Paul's own words. Let everyone be subject, chapter 13, verse 1, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. In fact, I'm just going to stop there for a moment. You see that principle? That God has established the authorities, to rebel against the authorities God has established is to rebel against God, to submit to those God has established is to submit to, those, is to, submit to God himself. The reason why this is motivated by grace and is, has a, a view filled with God is because it understands that actually this world, though it may seem haphazard and random to us, and filled with unexplainable injustices. To God, there is a very clear picture emerging. And through what looks to us to be the chaos of this life, God is in fact at work to achieve all that he has planned and purposed to do. And God is always, as he always has done, used human agents to do it. And we were tested in this a little while ago when we were told that as churches we couldn't meet couldn't gather together in person to worship God. 
And we were told things that sometimes didn't make any sense to us. Like, you're not allowed to sing, even though to this day we were never provided with any evidence that said singing spreaded the virus any faster than anything else. And we were already wearing masks. And so it made no sense that we couldn't sing, and yet we had to wear masks. And even if we weren't wearing masks, we wouldn't be able to sing. And if we were wearing masks, we wouldn't be able to sing. It made no difference. And this put us in conflict with the other biblical principles, like we should not give up meeting together. And it was a complicated issue. And one of the reasons why we took it so seriously is because of this. That actually, respecting authority is not just something we do because we're worried about what people will think of us or the effect it's going to have on our community, though that's a valid thing to think about. But actually because these authorities have been placed by God over us. And that it's part of our worship of God to submit ourselves to governing authorities. This is difficult. I wonder if you remember the Lord Jesus, that as he was being unjustly, unfairly sentenced to death for crimes that he had not committed, the only way they could get him before Pilate in the first place was by manufacturing a whole set of accusations that contradicted each other, didn't make sense. It was a kangaroo court that got him there. It was a total injustice. He had done nothing wrong. And yet as he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, why do you not speak in your defense? Don't you realize I have the authority to set you free or to put you to death? And do you remember what our Lord's reply to him was? You have no authority except that which is given to you from above. So the Lord Jesus himself standing before an unjust court and an unjust death sentence that would end his life, submits to the Father, as he always did, by submitting to the governing authority that the Father had placed there, even though it meant his death. And we think, well, that's not right, that's unjust. But here's the wonderful thing about the way God works, that yes, through that injustice, through that scandal, what happened was the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross. And he went to the cross, and through going to the cross and dying as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, it meant that you and I have a hope of being with God again, of being reconciled to him, of having our sins forgiven of being brought into his kingdom and adopted into his family and loved by him as our heavenly father. None of that would have been possible had Christ not submitted himself, not only to the father, but to the unjust governing authority that had been placed there. Now, does that mean that God approves of what unjust governors and authorities do? Of course not. But does it mean that God has placed them there and that he'll hold them accountable for the, the courses of action that they take? Of course he will. Of course he did. And does that mean that he's working through their decisions, whether good or bad, in order to accomplish his plans and purposes? Yes, that's exactly what it means. If we have no view of God 
being intimately involved in society and in his sovereign providence, that is, his orchestration of all events to accomplish his plans and purposes, then we will have no idea how to submit. Because it will just be us making up for ourselves what we think the right thing to do is. We will become the gods of our own lives rather than submitting ourselves to God who rules over us through human authorities. Just think about it. If the Christian says, if you say to the Christian, who do you submit to? And the Christian says, I submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. And say, yes, well, how do you submit to him? Well, through the Bible. I submit to him through what has been said through the Bible. Yes, but whose interpretation of the Bible do you submit to? And it's at this point when we have to take the Roman Catholic criticism of evangelicalism very seriously. Do you know what Roman Catholics say about us? They say, you evangelicals, you reject our Pope in order to make yourselves the Popes of your own life. You reject his interpretation of Scripture in order to make your interpretation of Scripture the sole governing authority of your life. But that's not what we do as evangelicals. It's not, it shouldn't be what we do where we decide for ourselves how to live and what to do. As evangelicals, we yield to the authorities that God has given us, whether at home or in the school or in the workplace or in church or in government. We submit to God's rule over us through the authorities he's placed there. So Paul says the way that you overcome evil with good, the way that you live by his grace for his glory is by submitting to the authorities that God has placed. Not being an anarchist, not living in total rebellion against everything that God has said and all the institutions he's placed over you, but by submitting to them and trusting God to be the overseer of our souls. Submission. So much more to say on that. So many questions buzzing through your minds right now. Please talk about them. Please ask. At fellowship group, we'll, we'll be talking about this, but after church today, let's talk about this some more. It's so important. But that's not where it ends. Submission, yes, but love, too. Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9 to say, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. You see what Paul does here? He says, this is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. If love, then love. But the clever twist on what Paul is saying there is that love is a debt that you owe to everyone all the time that you can never pay off. Love is a continuing debt. You know, when the disciples ask the Lord Jesus, how many times do we have to forgive? And he says seven or 77 times seven. And they start doing the math. What's seven times seven or 77 times seven? And, and, and the point is that actually it's not about doing the math. It's about saying that you, 
you always forgive. Because that's what the gospel does for you. You are forgiven. And as many times as God forgives you your sins, is how many times you should forgive others. The same principle works with love. The kind of love or the way in which you love or the extent to which you love others should flow from the love you've received from God. In view of his mercy, love is something that you always owe to everyone all the time. And what does love mean? It's not a feeling like the, the song from Wet, Wet, Wet or the Trogs, depending on how old you are. Love is a fulfilling of the law, says Paul. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there be, summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. If you are doing something that is harming someone, and that is defined, how you harm someone is defined by Scripture itself, then that is not a loving thing to do. Love is the devotion to someone else's good. And you always owe that to everyone, to be devoted to their good. Do no harm. Submit, says Paul. Love, says Paul. These are the things the world doesn't expect. When you get treated with evil, you repay evil with vengeance and cruelty. When you get get treated with injustice, you repay that with anarchy and rebellion. But Paul is saying you don't do that. You overcome evil with good. You submit and you love always. And finally, he says, do this understanding the present time. In verse 11, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, holiness. Remember what Paul said in, in chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. How do you make sure that you're not overcome by evil? You're not overcome by evil if you continue to resist it, to put off the deeds of darkness, to put on the armor of light. To do what is right in God's sight. But notice that all of this, and this is really, I think, the theme that runs through, through this, this whole section, is that all of this is only possible if you understand, and John made this point, and the hymns that we sang made this point, and so I feel very confident that God is making this point as it comes through the Scripture. This is something that we need to hear. That we are not living for this life now. We are living for the age to come. That's what it means to understand the present time. To understand the present time is to understand that the present time is fleeting. To understand that this isn't the end goal. It's not just that Christians believe that there's more to life. It's that we believe that the main thing is yet to come. This life is but a moment, a memory, a fleeting, insignificant moment compared to the spectrum of eternity. The main thing is to come. And so how, how on earth does the Christian continue to, to continue to love those who are unloving towards them? Because we don't mind sacrificing this life because the main thing is yet to come. 
How is it that the Christian is able to continually submit even when that means loss of comfort and dignity in this world now? Because we don't mind giving up this life now for the life that is to come. If the pandemic that we've just been through has taught us anything, is to remember our own mortality. We are all going to die. And either that means that you're going to lose your life, or it means that your life is only going to begin in earnest, in truth. It's not that this life doesn't matter in any sense, but it's not the main thing. It's not what we're waiting for. It's not what we're hoping for and yearning for. The night, this is nighttime. But we're like those who've woken up knowing that the morning star's already up, the day is coming. And so we're starting to live now as though the day is already here. It's not here yet, but it's almost here. And so we live like that. What kind of life best expresses the fact that we don't mind giving up this world for the world that is to come? What kind of life best expresses that we're living now for the world to come? It's by living by the values of that world now. So we put off the deeds of darkness. We put on the armor of light because this is what Christ has done for us. He's woken us up. Our eyes are open now to the fact that this world is not the main thing. We are not living for this age. We're living for the age to come. And so we submit and we love and we bear up under injustice and we do all this because of God because of what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we continue and we persevere. We continue in submission. We continue in love. And we continue in holiness, not succumbing to the evil of this world, but not joining in with it by fighting it with more evil, but by overcoming evil with good in love and submission and holiness. Rather, says Paul, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus and do not think to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we recognize that as we consider this, we are helpless to do this by our own strength. And we thank you for how you've already taught us in Romans that it is not by our own strength that we are required to, to do this. That we don't just muscle through with willpower but it is by the work of your Spirit in us, poured out into our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray that your Spirit would be so at work in us now that we might put all of our trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus to teach us what it means to live as though the day is almost here. Teach us what it means to overcome evil with good. Teach us what it means to keep your mercy and grace so in view that it forms not only what we believe, but how we act. Father, help us to continue in love. Help us to continue in trust and submission. Help us to continue in holiness. Help us to continue in grace. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.